Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. In an era of online retail where everything is just a few clicks away, buying a car should be no different. That's why at Carvana, you can buy a car 100% online. We made it easy to browse, view, and buy from over 10,000 cars. You can even trade in your old car, all while binge-watching your favorite TV show. Afterwards, we'll deliver your car to you. Or you can pick it up from one of our car vending machines. Either way, your car comes with a seven-day return policy. So grab a seat, relax in your comfy pants, and enjoy the new way to buy a car at Carvana. It's that little Chico Pitbull, Mr. 305, but I said Mr. Worldwide. You already know what it is. Listen to my new podcast from Negative to Positive. Subscribe today. Now, part of the things that we're doing over here at Negative to Positive is encouraging people to change their lives, change the things that are within their power. I want to thank our good friends at KFC for helping me bring this to you. Feed your whole crew with KFC. Let's go. I can get the KFC bucket of chicken, and you know, that's fire. Now, Babo, you know that you could get that mac and cheese, that mashed potato, gravy, those biscuits. Now, that's that's trouble right there. That is fire right there. You know, on Negative to Positive, we're always talking about striving and achievement. And, and the Colonel Sanders story is, is a story that inspired me since I was 10 years old. Look how life comes full circle. Now I'm talking about Colonel Sanders and Kentucky Fried Chicken and how much I love it. <laughs> Listen to my new podcast from Negative to Positive. Check out the vodcast. Subscribe today. Apple Podcast. Podcast One. Spotify. Right after that. My acting career sort of took off. It's really tragic. <laughs> Welcome back for another episode of Ladies Night. I have Sheila Van with me this time, and we are going to be talking about the rental snowpiercer and so much more. Because I guarantee you, you have not even scratched the surface of what Sheila has accomplished over the course of her career. How are you doing? 
I'm doing okay, surviving and hanging in there. Um, I'm excited for today because it's our release day for the rental. So, so yes. How are you holding up? I'm, I'm holding. I cannot complain. I get to hang with my family and my cat, and I get to sit and do interviews in the comfort of my own home all day. So not so bad. And also, it's an excuse to wear sweatpants all day, <laughs> every day, which I know not everybody out there loves, but I don't know. It's like my natural habitat, being in sweatpants and a sweatshirt. Yeah, absolutely. Who doesn't love that? Seriously. I, I doesn't want to be in their sweat. <laughs> I have the same exact question for anybody out there who's wearing jeans right now. <laughs> um, all right. So... Back to the beginning for you, I am curious, what were you watching at a very young age? And do you find that those shows or movies have shaped your taste in the roles that you gravitate towards today? When I was really little, I was a big cartoon aficionado. I loved cartoons. I, I kind of watched like kitty cartoons for way past the point that you're supposed to. I was a big Nickelodeon kid, like yes. all that kind of 90s madness of like TV sort of figuring itself out. It was a little bit, you know, I have I had two immigrant parents who both worked full-time jobs my whole life. So there were times where definitely I was like left to my own devices. And I feel like that shaped me in the sense that I had to use my own imagination to entertain myself a lot. Mm -hmm. And also I kind of grew up in this TV era where um, I feel like back then in the nineties, it was, things were just a lot zanier and wackier. And maybe that was part of the reason why I feel like I'm still today constantly gravitating towards things that are a little more strange and surreal. And then as I got a bit older, like in high school, I became really obsessed with David Lynch and uh, Tarantino's movies. And like later on um, into Jodorowsky and kind of started to discover these filmmakers that were really breaking the rules. John Waters, people who were making movies that I had never thought you would ever be allowed to make. Um, and those things just really have stuck with me and inspired me. And the things that I, I, I'm always trying to seek out are stuff that stretch my imagination. And I do actually think now that you asked me that question, that maybe a, a lot of those cartoons from early on had something to do with it. And now I'm trying to get more into doing voiceover animation stuff, partially so that I can wear my sweatpants to work, um, like you said. But also because I miss cartoons and I miss the ability to... Um, I don't know, there's something just really nostalgic and comforting to me about animated work. And I'm, uh, I'm trying to do some more of that stuff. What were, what were the 90s Nickelodeon shows of choice? <laughs> Rocco's Modern Life, I absolutely loved. Angry Beavers, that was really great. Um, I kind of did the all of them, like Rugrats, SpongeBob. I was like maybe watching a little bit of Nick Jr. as well. Um, we, we, we were definitely the same generation of 90s Nickelodeon cartoons. The only one that you haven't named yet that really speaks to me is Ah Real Monsters. I loved Ah Real Monsters. <laughs> It's like a major like recently that came back into my consciousness. I've been meaning to revisit that cartoon because it was I don't know if they make kids shows like that anymore. I feel like they don't make them that push the boundaries quite like that. Because I also grew up heavily into Ren and Stimpy. And there's a lot of stuff in that show that's wildly inappropriate. Oh God, that so inappropriate. Yeah, that would not. 
I don't think that would work today necessarily. I would like it's a little too gross for me, which is which is weird because normally I'm really into gross stuff. I, I'm pretty convinced that my current fear of the dentist all stems from that episode where Ren has the tooth problem. I know exactly what you're talking about. I'm pretty sure. I'm now remembering as you're jogging my mind. I also really loved Hey Arnold. Oh, yes. And, um, I like kind of had a crush on Arnold because he's like such a good person. <laughs> but I think that was like one of the things that started getting me really enchanted with New York City because it all takes place in New York. Well, that's so true. I mean, maybe, maybe that's where that love comes from as well. I also feel like they're they're rebooting a lot of these properties. So I don't know. Get get the word out there if they do an animated yeah, right? There were so many good ones. Do you remember um, the the Beats and Doug? Of course <laughs> I do. <laughs> Doug was a very very big deal. I think I had I probably had more of a crush on Doug than Hey Arnold, but for that exact same reason because he was like a good kid who always learned from his mistakes. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god! Oh, really like taking me back. So that's that's where it all began for you as far as getting into entertainment. But when did that switch from like I'm enjoying watching this to like I need to make the goal of becoming an actor or a creator in general my career? Yeah, it was um well I started doing plays in middle school and high school. The first time I ever officially acted <laughs> um, where it was like, I had to like memorize something and say it besides just like playing pretend with my friends and like storytelling at slumber parties was actually in the fifth grade. We did a reenactment of the American revolution and I played Ethan Allen and it was like a school assembly. And, you know, most of the kids were just like, whatever, we have to do this thing. And I was like, took it very seriously. And um, my family moved from Southern California to Northern California after fifth grade. And later in life, I found this letter from Miss Ware, this teacher who was like, who was like Professor Snape, like the teacher everybody was just terrified of. She was so strict. She ran detention. And she had written a letter to my mom about how impressed she was by my reenactment of Ethan Allen in the American Revolution. And, and like told my mom, you have to push Sheila in acting classes and you have to push her to do this. And so it's funny because I always think I sort of just stumbled into this acting thing. But actually, when I look back, I'm like, there were all these sort of like, things along the way that we're building up to this moment. And, but even still, like even in high school and middle school, like it felt like a hobby and it felt just like too much of a pipe dream to follow, especially as like a first generation immigrant kid. Like it's nobody in my family is in the industry. Nobody, you know, my parents are like, how on earth are you going to do this? Um, so then I applied to theater schools for college and, I even, I'm just like so insane. I was like, if I don't get into any of these schools that you have to audition for, I'm not going to try. Cause I, I wanted to know that I was like good enough. And then I did get into a couple theater schools. So, but again, even still like never dreamt that it was going to last very long. And it was when I studied abroad in Spain and I didn't get to do theater for like five months and I fell into a deep depression that I realized that that acting was somehow tied to my livelihood and like my sense of purpose and something more kind of spiritual was, was going on. And that was it. Like once I came back from studying abroad, I was like full laser focus into 
into theater and acting and, and it's like didn't really stop since. So you identify that laser focus and then what's your next step? Because still then you kind of have to break in, in a sense. So at that point, did you visualize a path that you could carve to get there? And how did that wind up changing with what you wound up experiencing? Yeah, I, that's a really great question. I, I didn't have as, I don't know. It's funny because I'm trying to dissect this myself as I'm navigating the way my career is continuing to evolve. But I think actually a lot of the rejection that I faced early on um, shaped me in a great way because in college, like just like in kind of middle school and high school, I, I wasn't really, I felt a little overlooked, to be honest. Um, I'm not sure if it's because I was a Middle Eastern American actor. Um, I'm not sure what it was, but I refused to believe it had to do with my merits or my work ethic because I worked very hard. Um, but being dismissed like that, um, what it did for me was that, first of all, it pushed me to make my own stuff. I realized very quickly that like things were not going to be handed to me, that the sort of like normal audition rat race wasn't working out for me. So it was kind of just like, okay, well, I have all this time on my hands. I'm going to write my own thing. I'm in college, a group of friends and I, we created our own theater company called Interstate Five, <laughs> I-5. And we just like produced our own stuff all the time. And it was such a rewarding chapter of my life. And I, I don't want to throw my college under the bus. Like definitely got some good things there and, and stuff. But I do sometimes joke that the biggest thing I learned from school was like that you just got to do it all yourself if you want to make it happen. Um, and so, yeah, I think that that kind of rejection that I faced feeling like I didn't fit into any of these molds pushed me to make my own mold. And now as I look back on like this decade, I've been doing it professionally. Um, I see how much it's actually served me to not, to not take that regular path that, I think I'm meant to be telling my own stories, not just acting, but writing and directing. And um, I ended up actually major. I got into school for acting, but I graduated with acting and directing. And um, yeah, I began to just, and then I got out of school and I started booking some things here and there that gave me enough encouragement and a little bit of money to, to say, this is possible. Don't quit. Don't quit just yet. Um, but in these huge stretches of being unemployed and just trying to get by as an aspiring actor, I started to create my own um, multimedia sort of theatrical experiences. And I still look back on that time as some of the best like days of my life. And I think it was because there was no pressure on me for who I was supposed to become. Like I didn't say like, I am going to be this like multimedia artist. It was just, a pursuit of things that interested me. And I'm trying to get back to that because now that I'm a little more established, I do feel the pressures of maintaining a certain level of, in, of quality and integrity. And even though those are noble things, like you have to allow yourself to be able to fail if you want to keep pushing yourself into new spaces. Mm -hmm. That that always excites me to know and to hear when someone is taking the success they had to put that weight behind projects and things and ideas that they really believe in. So if that's the path you're on, I cannot wait to see what you do with all that momentum. I did want to ask you about Sneaky Nietzsche because 
I, I, having grown up in New York, I was very exposed to sleep no more. I, like right. I went there quite a few times. Your, it's. I watched the uh, like a little video or a trailer for your show. It seemed like a very similar thing, but you kind of came first. <laughs> I did in a way. I mean, I don't know. If there, I know Sleep No More was in development for many years before it yeah. came to the New York scene and like bursted on there. But um, I had never heard of Sleep No More when I made Sneaky Nietzsche, and have even been happening first. Um, I, I don't know, but. Later on, so many people drew comparisons between these two things. And it, quite frankly, aggravated me because they had a $10 million budget and we had like a $10,000 budget. And so the fact that we were being put on the same level and, and every penny of that money was all my own money that was every penny that I had to my name. Like I had basically booked like one commercial and done one guest star and saved some of my unemployment benefits and just was like, at that point, having that much money, I felt like the richest person in the world. And I didn't like it. I was like, I don't want to be this comfortable. I could immediately see the complacency and like luxury and the complacency and getting comfortable creatively. So I wanted to like throw myself off of the proverbial cliff and just like put all my money into this thing. And like, I was like sleeping at, in this warehouse. I was homeless while I was making that show because all of my money went to the show and to the, this, this warehouse that I had rented out and built this underground forest in. And um, it was a huge feat what we did. It was also like, you know, in New York, you see, cool underground art things but like in LA it's not as common at all and certainly not when I made that show and so you know it's it's cool like I'm glad to be compared to something that is about it has a million times the budget I had but I remember at the time being like if I had ten million dollars um, and I also think there were I went to sleep no more and after Sneaky Nietzsche was done and um I don't know, you know, again, it's like, I don't want to be critical. Like, <laughs> it's a phenomenon that's beloved. And, and at the end of the day, like, I'm always going to be pro, like, site-specific, immersive, boundary-pushing work. Um, but it's a shame that, like, I didn't get to really, because our show, Sneaky Nietzsche, was a big success. People love it. People still talk about it, and it's been years. But what ended up happening is, like, kind of right after that, my acting career sort of took off. It's really tragic. <laughs> no, I, I don't mean to sound ungrateful. I was happy for getting acting jobs, but I kind of, um, because, you know, I'm, I'm completely financially independent and come from a middle-class working class family. Like it was as these jobs were suddenly presenting themselves to me. And also because I've been rejected for so long, I was like, okay. And I, I sort of went down this acting lane and, I stopped making my own stuff for a while, but I'm getting back to that. I, I have this um, project. We could get to it later. That's on my, my Instagram that I self-released that was partially about me, like working those muscles again and getting back to telling my own stories and stuff. So 
You do that show, you say that your acting career is taking off, so you have to kind of pivot in that direction a little more. What was the first gig that you booked that convinced you that, you know, like it's time to pursue that path and not necessarily leave what I was loving that I was doing behind, but, you know, put it to the side for a little bit. I was in an incredible play called Bengal Tiger at the Baghdad Zoo, which was a Pulitzer Prize finalist at the time. And um, we had done it by Rajiv Joseph, who's a genius, and Moises Kaufman, who I idolized, directed it. And it was done in L.A. actually twice before I moved to Broadway. And so we had done it in L.A. twice, and then it was moving over to New York. And I think it was partially the that – I mean, I wouldn't say that show took me away from anything, but – I actually think what it was more of was I really burnt out after Sneaky Nietzsche. Like I wore so many hats in that thing. I, I helped write the original music. I, I starred in it. I directed it. I produced it. I was like living and breathing this thing, even though um, I did have lots of help and tons of people were involved with it. But um, I, I was young and, you know, just like insane, like ready to give my life for art. And and so I burnt out really hard. And I remember at the end of that, just being like, oh my God, I cannot wait to like, just be acting in something and just like, not have to have this, like, it was high level stress. I was like running a venue at the same time that I was running a show. <laughs> and also like, it was truly underground, like by the end of it, uh, actually, I don't want to go into some of the uh, legal thing, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, I think it was a combination, yeah, of, of burning out, which which has been an important lesson to me throughout my career is that like you have to take breaks and you do have to to care for yourself to sustain the the creative energy, which can be really draining. Um, but it feels like Bengal Tiger happened, and then a girl walks home alone at night happened, and I booked my first series regular role on a TV show, just like all at once. And so it was like, wow, this is amazing. This is always my goal is to do film and theater and pay my bills. Um, (laughs) TV. Uh, (laughs) uh, And uh, I think maybe it was the TV stuff because that stuff just takes so much more of your time. Like those shoots are six months to a year long. Whereas at theater also similarly, you know, I, I did, Bengal Tiger for three consecutive years and um, I would never take it back like ever you know even though I had a small part in it and I was but it was such a treasure and then Robin Williams was in our Broadway production and um, it was such a memorable experience to get to know him and work with him so but I would never like say that took me away from making my own stuff Mm -hmm. and like also a girl walks home at night like these things feel still in line with um, the types of things I've I want to make, but I think what maybe distracted me was these TV gigs that were like the first time I was ever making real money, like money where like I didn't have to worry every single time a job ended. Like there was, it gave me just that much cushion to breathe. I guess that was the beginning of it where, but I I don't know. I, I, I get frustrated with myself because I've, I've had many times in my life where it's been clear to me that like, I'm not happy in, in some of those situations. And yet I found myself sort of 
back in them often, but I think I'm now, I'm now in a good spot where I, I've, I've grown the courage to say no to things. And, um, it's a balancing act. It's something that I'm like enjoying talking about right now, because I feel like a lot of times you feel like an act as, as an actor that like, I don't know, like you're a coward if you take a job just for money or, um, and there's nothing to be ashamed about uh, when it comes to having to pay your bills, you know, like we're not all independently wealthy. I'm proud of being self-made and that I don't come from privilege and money. So, um, I just sort of stand by that and have to remind myself that like some jobs I take are, are like a nine to five situation. It's just like a clock in clock out. And, um, of course I always still try to bring my best work to anything, but, um, it's, it's, it's also doubly hard on top of building the courage to say no to money, to say no to opportunities, then to also be a Middle Eastern American actress where the pool of job opportunities is like so much smaller. So um, I've heard like certain ethnic, really famous actors say things like, I would never take a role where I had to do an accent or, oh, I would never do this or that. And it's like, sometimes I feel a little hurt by that because I'm like, you know, good for you that you got to make it without ever having to sacrifice anything. But I don't think it's fair to dismiss the people along the way who've had to, who haven't had as many opportunities and have had to take what they could get and, and make the most of it, which I think is a big part of how I got to where I am is that like, I said yes to so many things. Like if, yeah, I was like the queen of short films for, a while in my life. I've been in like 7,000 short Well, I mean, that's, that's where it all starts. And you have to, you have to build on experience. And if you keep saying no to things, you're never going to build, you're never going to learn about your craft. So I, I totally respect that approach, especially when you're just starting out and you're finding what's most important to you in the roles that you take. Yeah, totally. I have a million follow-up questions based on what you said, and I'm going to try my hardest to remember them all. I did want to ask you about working with Robin Williams, who, of course, is an industry icon. So looking back, is there anything about your time with him that you catch yourself referring to today? Yeah, I do. Um, also, it was Robin's birthday just a couple of days ago. Yes, so it was. birthday, Robin. Um, one of the things that like I was so taken aback by with him was how willing he was to try anything the director asked him to try and what was amazing was he was doing it in front of all of us because that's how theater works right you're you're not in in film and television like you could be in a movie with an actor you never even meet if you don't have scenes with them and you can't do a lot of your work on your own but in the theater it's right out there in the open and I was so amazed by how egoless he was about his process it doesn't mean that like I mean he might try something and then be like I don't know if that worked but he would always try and I have seen especially because like I said I I am I also graduated with a directing major so I had assistant directed a bunch of theater early on in my career and I would see sometimes actors like sabotage directors choices because they didn't want to do that choice so they would like try it but without full conviction but Robin would just go like full force to try any way to get to get into to get into the core of the thing and also beyond that had a work ethic that put the rest of us to shame like he was twice our age and had 10 times the amount of lines as any of us like 
he had these insanely long monologues in this show. And he would show up like an hour before anybody else to the theater to like be running his lines and going through them, like going through his blocking. And, you know, like he's a massive iconic celebrity and not to say that that excuses you from doing the real work, but the truth is like there are, there are plenty of like high profile people who I've, you know, not that I know of or whatever, like specific, I'm not referring to anyone specifically, just like that, you know, the rest they've kicked their feet up after a certain amount of time. And it felt like working with Robin Williams was like, it was like there was no difference between someone in the beginning of their career, the end of their career. Like he cared just as much and brought so much of himself. So I've always been really inspired by that type of work ethic. And I, sometimes when I'm afraid of, of a director of a direction, I think of him of like, try it, just try it. You know, I love hearing that. It's as ever. I mean, I I get why this could happen, but it is disappointing to hear that sometimes when actors get a direction that they don't feel in line with the idea of sabotaging it. I don't know. That just, that that frustrates me. I I have, here's the thing that I'll say like to the credit of actors too, is like, it depends on the director. Like, you have to trust each other. Like if trust gets broken for any reason, uh, you do sometimes have to protect yourself as an actor. So like I actually had one situation. um, I won't get too specific about it, but um, I was really green and young and it was a big job for me. And the director was kind of a lunatic and there was an older, really like seasoned veteran actress in the cast who kind of took me under her wing and said, like, don't listen to anything he says. Like, she would just, like, in one ear and out the other. And she was even like, just look at me if you're worried, and I'll just remind you, I'll just go like this. And, like, in one ear and out the other. And I was way too scared to do that because I didn't want to get fired. And I was like, well, she's, like, super established. Nobody's firing her. But, like, I can't just ignore the director. So I – and also, like, I'm a team player. I come from the theater where it's really collaborative. So I would do – whatever this director asked of me. And he loved me for that. And to this day, it is the most cringeworthy performance I have ever given. So I actually like, this is just, you know, just to show that there's a spectrum of things, but um, there are times when you have to protect yourself. But of course that's different than just being like, I don't want to try that. I have already, I, I know there are some huge actors who I haven't worked with, but I just like, I know people who have and and like, they just come in with like, this is how I'm playing this part. And I'm not going to vary. And again, I don't know their life experiences. Maybe they've been burned in the past or something, but to me, it's more fun to collaborate and mm-hmm. you can always go back to your original choice. If you, but I think it's um, the scary thing is on camera. If you try it on camera and you don't like it, then they can still use it in the editing room. Whereas at least in theater, it's like you can just completely mm-hmm. play and rehearsal and then you're the editor on stage. It's good to hear both sides of a situation like that. I, I feel like, uh, you know, especially on my end, on the press end, it's very easy to hear one thing and be like, ha, that person's wrong. But <laughs> You got to take into account everybody's position and everybody's experience in the industry as well. Yeah. 
I also can't not ask you about your experience working on Argo. So I'm sure you go into a situation like that, having certain assumptions about Ben Affleck. So is there anything that he did on that set as a director that kind of pleasantly surprised you? He is also, I've, I've generally honestly gotten so lucky. Like I feel like all the huge name people I've worked with have been wonderful. Um, so uh, I, I feel really like grateful for that. But Ben Affleck also similarly was just like so generous with his energy and he's a very down to earth person. Like he, I was really nervous. It was my first major, major motion picture. I love saying that. (laughs) Um, And it was like a heavy hitting cast with like John Goodman and like all these cool people. And I just felt like this like rookie and he just disarms you right away. Like he created such a safe, like warm feeling place that I actually genuinely felt like I could do good work because I wasn't so intimidated. Like I'll shut down and I don't work well with like more kind of tyrannical filmmakers. He's not like that at all. And I, I don't know if it's because he's an actor himself. Like he seemed to really respect our process and he wanted things to feel natural for us. He wanted us to feel comfortable um, and he just like in general just has such a like warm and friendly energy that he doesn't come off as this like guarded, I'm a celebrity, I'm untouchable at all. He's And I think that's like kind of like what he's been known for a lot in his career is like he's played a lot of these like everyday guys and stuff. And um, yeah, it was it was it was an environment where I felt like everyone got to shine a bit, even though it was a big ensemble piece. And um, he was so supportive. It was really, really nice. Like, I, I he, he didn't, I, in a situation like that, like, being one of the only Iranian actors in this movie and, like, having a smaller supporting part, it's, it's, I can't tell you how often, like, I have been kind of just overlooked and, like, mistaken for an extra, even when I'm, like, number seven you know like high up on the call sheet or a principal actor like not that there's anything wrong with being an extra I'm just saying like come on I've been here every day you've been seeing me like am I that invisible to you but it wasn't like that on Argo at all like Ben Affleck always made me feel like I was an important part of this story and even in the way that like he had me come in and do the voiceover for the beginning of the film and he also added a scene to the end of the film where you see my character escaping Iran because they had done it, shown it to a few test audiences who actually like wanted to know what happened with my character, which was like really great. But also like he made that choice as the director that like that was important to him too. And he, he wanted to add that. So I I felt really seen by him and like, like he, um, yeah, he was, he just included me in that, in that group in a way that like, I don't think I normally necessarily would have been included. I I really I love hearing that. I love hearing that there's there's people who are, you know, considered at like the tippy top level out there that are influencing their companies in a positive way like that because we need more of them. Yeah. I have to also ask you about A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. I guess specifically just because that was one of the first times where like I really took note of your work and I'm like, all right. One to watch right there, not going anywhere. And uh, the same with Anna also. that I mean, that was a game changer for her, and she's accomplished so much since. So did you find the same thing happen when that movie kind of made waves where, I don't know, maybe a certain type of role you were getting just, like, 
broadened and you started to get more opportunities. Yeah, I absolutely. Sorry, I'm just fixing my hair because... <laughs> I'm surprised I haven't done one of these yet. It's getting New York sweaty. I uh, sorry. It's like a sauna here. <laughs> I know. And, and no, the, no, the struggle of New York well with bangs. Um, no, yes, sorry, go back to it did. It totally opened doors for me and it was it was a nice feeling to have something like that where my work could speak for me. Like, you know, part of being an actor is doing presses, is getting the word out there about who you are and what you're up to. And and sometimes you start to feel like a salesman, you know? And so like not always. I've gotten better at it. And also it depends on what you're promoting and, and your connection to it and how you feel about it. Um but when you start to get like a body of work, when you have something like a girl walks home at night, it feels like, I don't know, like I didn't have to so much be like hustling for myself as like, well, now I have something that like, you now I have a couple of things that you can string together that um, are representative of my capabilities. And I'm grateful that that film was able to really showcase some things that I'm good at. But then at the same time, because it was, in Farsi, it was like I still had to kind of break the next barrier where I had to prove to people, like, I can also act in English and I'm actually American. Um, there was, I think, for a while, a lot of people who weren't sure, like casting directors and stuff, weren't sure if I spoke English, who, like, weren't sure if, if like, where I came from. And that bugged me a bit because it felt like this was like, I, I understand it. It's a, it's a movie that's all in Farsi. Mm-hmm. But when I, in Argo, I only spoke Farsi as well. In Bengal Tiger, I spoke English and Arabic, but I was still like, you know, feeling a bit like I was only being seen a certain type of way. Um, so, so it, it was great. And it, and it, and especially in the indie world, like massively open doors and, the nice thing too is like a girl walks home on a night. Like that's the type of stuff I, I love and want to always be doing like genre movies, movies that push boundaries. And so it attracted more of that kind of work. So that was really awesome. And there were some filmmakers who could see past the Farsi. Like I was blown away when Ingrid Youngerman cast me in women who kill. It's like one of the first times I had been just offered a role. And I was amazed that she had the imagination to know that, I was a good actor, despite the fact that I was doing it in a foreign language. But a lot of people in Hollywood don't have that kind of imagination. So then I sort of set off to prove, um, you know, I can I can hold my own also in other parts. And then, you know, doing Women Who Kill helped with that. Doing Later We the Animals was a big, mm. big opportunity in a way. And, and that was exciting because it was like, I mean, I'm coming more to terms with playing my own race. Uh we can talk about that more later, but it was still nice to just play something to play this Italian American character in We the Animals, probably because of a lot of like deep seated need to assimilate that I'm trying to unlearn. I mean, I'm born and raised here. I'm an American. So it was nice to do some things where it's like, I'm just whether or not I'm Persian American or something else American, or it doesn't matter American. Um, I was finally kind of breaking out of the pigeonhole of just like, oh, she can only be like a Middle Eastern character who speaks in a, in a Middle Eastern language. Is there any specific moment that you would attribute to getting that feeling that you want to come to terms with, you know, your heritage and playing that in movies more? 
yeah, that's just happened like just recently in the last couple of years. And I think it has a lot to do with like the collective cultural awakening that's been going on um, with not only like the Me Too movement, but also Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. and um, just this like reckoning we're all going through, I think, as a society right now. And so when I was coming up in the game, like, because it was like, I really feel like Hollywood is so lazy. Like, (laughs) they will just try to box you in because they just don't want to do the work of thinking you can do more than that. And so I always was afraid, one, that playing too many Middle Eastern parts was going to pigeonhole me. But also I had this thing where I felt like when I got a Middle Eastern role that people were going to think the only reason I got it was because it was Middle Eastern, like not because I was talented. And there was also this thing that would happen in my career where like I would get cast even in a role that was just like a white role, just a normal role, whatever. White, maybe not white, like just had a normal non-ethnic name and then after casting me they would want to change my character's name to something middle eastern this happened many times and i used to not like the first time that happened i asked them not to do that and they were cool with it and they heeded my wish and the reason was that the, i'll tell you why it bothered me was that it's not like they had written a middle eastern role or a, an ethnic role to give an opportunity to an ethnic actor. Instead, I had to compete with a pool of white actors who are afforded a lot more opportunities than I am. And I win for my talent and my merit. And then they want to get points for diversity after the fact. And that's not right to me. It's like, you didn't, you should have done this before then because I didn't, want the perception to be that I only competed with 10 girls for this part when the reality was I had competed with 400 girls for the part. Um, But as time went on and I began to really understand how important visibility was and inclusion is, and that if I hid behind some whitewashed version of myself or like, you know, whitewash the name of a character, then how was that visibility going to really happen? And I started to realize, you know what? It's less about what this character's name is. And it's more about what kind of character this is. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, it's fine if you want to, like it happened actually in Snowpiercer. Like originally my character's name was Cleo. And all of a sudden when things changed behind the scenes there, I became Zara Farami. And I had a moment where I was like, do I want to do this? And I realized, you know what, maybe it's a good thing. We need to see Middle Eastern people on screen to show Hollywood that like we can play ball and and also just like for culture, for representation. So I had a conversation with them of like, that's okay. I'm down with this, but I just don't want it to now become followed by a slew of other stereotypes. And so Um, they were cool with that too. And we had the conversation and they assured me that like, I wasn't suddenly going to become, you know, similar with like when I did 24 legacy and they were, you know, coming after me pretty hard to play that role. I, I, I told them like, the only way I'll do this is if you never make my character a terrorist in this show, there cannot be some twist where I'm the one who's the bad guy. And they assured me of that as well. So it's basically been this dance of like getting into being, I mean, 
also like, you know, un- undoing and unlearning like internalized white supremacy, to be quite frank, like growing up, I did feel like all those things that get put into our minds that, that, I don't know, white is more American and white is prettier and, and, and more valid in some way. And, um, and of course, I want to just acknowledge, I know I'm a light-skinned Iranian girl, so I have benefited from that. And I'm not, you know, that I'm not happy about that. It makes me sad that um, a darker-skinned actress just as good as me might not get something just because of that. That's extremely messed up. And I'm glad the world is now changing. Um, but I, yeah, I've started to, with this whole tide and sea change of, inclusion and representation i'm like of course i want to be part of that um and uh yeah so 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 i'm I'm embracing it way more and just getting a little more involved behind the scenes which was also scary to do when i was younger because like i said i just like never wanted to get fired and i was always made to feel so disposable unreplaceable so now i'm like you know but you can't get that without some experience and age like now i'm like I don't need, I don't need you. Um, you, you need me. So, um, and I just, to hear that now. Yeah. I, I, so yeah, it's, it's about having enough of those conversations where you protect yourself from suddenly becoming a radical Muslim just because you're playing a Middle Eastern role. Oh, I, I really cannot express how happy I am that you kind of came out the other side, you know, uh, with a stronger sense of embracing your identity. Cause the, I like, I still will never get over the fact, and I know I'm speaking from a place of privilege, but I will never get over the fact that stuff like that happens. Like it, it makes sense in my mind, but I also can't compute it at the same time. And I can just like, I hear, I feel my heart shriveling up when I hear stories like that. Well, that's why it's good to share them, you know, because yeah. I think that these concepts like racism and sexism they're really big and sometimes it's it is hard to wrap your head around it especially if you haven't really firsthand experienced it and it can become easy to to dismiss or ignore and part of what's happening right now I think in our country is like the tragedy of George Floyd forced so many people to have to just look it right in the face and um, some of the things that have helped me unpack my internalized racism is hearing and seeing the pain of how it's affected others. That's how I think we can help our allies or non, um, or just, I guess, white people to be able to connect a little bit with it. Like when you see someone you care about in pain or you don't have to care about them, but when you, when you actually see the effect on a human it's really hard to look away from that. And then if you also start to feel sad about it, you know, that's empathy. That's what compassion is. But we, I think need that in order to process something that a lot of us process intellectually, like in our, into our bodies. Um, I did this, like I did this crazy camp in high school called camp any town. And this is conversations really reminding me of it. Our school sent a bunch of us to this camp that was about prejudice. And there were all sorts of crazy exercises we did that, like, looking back on it, I'm, like, not totally sure it was, like, okay to do to teenagers. But it was extremely effective. And, um, 
like one of the things that we did, and there were so many things and they sound fucked up, but the point of them is for the kids to come out realizing this is screwed up and I don't want to be part of it. And like one of the things we did on the first day we got to this campus, we were all separated into ethnic groups, like to racial groups. And um, there was also one group for LGBTQ AI kids. And, um, and then we would take turns where each group would go outside and the counselor would ask us all to say any slur we've ever heard about that group of people. And at first all the kids are kind of like, what? Like I, I can say that stuff out loud and everybody's nervous. And then slowly someone says, you know, one thing and then another thing. And then everyone gets comfortable by the end of it. It's creepily like a bunch of people shouting slurs and they write them all down. And they did this for every group. And then one at a time, they put those lists up and they had that group come in and read the list. And every time each group was just bawling and weeping. And so right there in front of your face, you could not leave. You couldn't look away, nor you saw how much pain, even the small things that once we were like, and then you're like, man, five minutes ago, we were joking about this thing. And then, and it was, it was like, I'll just never forget it. I'll never forget it. And um, ever since then, you know, I mean, I've always been like pretty outspoken about, about trying to squash like inappropriate language and, and things like that. And, and through most of my life, I've been considered like hypersensitive because like, I don't want you to say this word or that word. And I'm just so glad the rest of the world seems to be on my page now where I'm like, screw you. I'm never going to feel bad again. And I'm so proud that even as a teenager, I was like shutting down the BS mm -hmm. that I was experiencing around me. So it took a little, a little too much time, but I, I am very thankful that we finally seem on the cusp of real change. And oh, I can't wait to see how it progresses from here with, with that mentality again, because I'm not sure if I'm like piecing together the, uh, you know, the schedule of when you signed on for certain roles in the production timeline here. But after going through that experience with Snowpiercer, did the rental and the character you play and the situation she's in and that come after? And is that something that you were really looking forward to embracing? Yeah, actually. Yeah. I think it was after season one that Dave approached me and that role was just different to me because it wasn't like, so often like ethnic roles are on the sidelines and they're just really there to assist like the male roles or the, the white roles. And this was a leading role, like, and not just like a leading role, but amongst these like well-established actors whose work I love and who are people who I really admire. And so that was, I've been like actually in the, doing these interviews, like realizing more and more like, how rare it's been for me to find leading roles. And so it was exciting to be like, wow, she has just as much screen time, if not more than most of these characters. Like that's just not usually how it goes down. Um, so that excited me about Mina. And then also the fact that they included this like moment of micro discrimination and her friends gaslighting. And it's something I, I so connect with. Um, and, she's a great character for so many reasons like that have nothing to do with her race. Like she just goes through so much in this movie. She has such a rich journey. I got to do like drama and horror and a little bit of lighthearted stuff in between. Um, so all of that was really great, but it was meaningful to me too, that 
She was a Persian American girl who ran a successful tech company and is smart and outspoken and calls out like the, the bit of racism that she experiences in the movie. Like, and at the same time is also complicated and troubled and, and all of these things. Like it, it was, I thought I liked the representation a lot and it seemed like an opportunity I wanted to season. Actually, like it, it was part of the thing that made me be like, screw this weird discrimination that even I've had against my character's names because her name is Mina Mohammadi. And I remember the first interview that I did in this press cycle where they had asked me to talk about my character. And I like pointedly decided to refer to her as Mina Mohammadi, not just Mina, because I was like, you know what? No, you should know that her last name is Mohammadi. And it's a beautiful last name. It's a beautiful name. And, uh, and, this was actually one of those things where like the character bled into my life a bit in the sense that I was like, cause you know, my name's Sheila Vand. Like that is my, the name I was born with. So yeah. it's like, not that ethnic either, you know, like, so I kind of didn't have to grow up with that element, I guess so much. Um, but uh, yeah, I am after finally so many years, like embracing more and more um, where I come from. I'll put up the spoiler flag because I'm a horror junkie. And one of the rules in horror is if you don't see the body, they're not necessarily dead. So what do you think that Mina's fate is in the end? I I don't want her to be dead. I think Mina, if she could survive this, would have a lot, a lot to do. Um and, you know, that was a really chunky cliffside. She could have kind of landed on a branch. or. A, uh, but I do love that. I love that Dave leaves it, Dave Franco leaves it open-ended, especially because it's really not with the other guys. And uh, it's, yeah, I don't know. I think, she, I don't know if she is or isn't, but I don't want her to be just because uh, somebody's got to catch that guy. Yeah, that I think she is. I feel like an an open-ended situation like that forces you to to think about everything that character had been through the entire journey, what she's capable of, and everything I learned about Mina through that process would tell me that of all people, she would find a way out of that situation. (laughs) Exactly. It's true, actually. You make a great point because it's not the first time she's in a crappy situation in that movie. (laughs) <laughs> that she kind of like manages to squirm her way out of. So there, yeah, there's absolutely the, that possibility. But I loved when I read the script that there wasn't that much gore period. And I, I appreciated that. Like it wasn't being exploitative at all, but I, I did love them. Spoiler, spoiler, spoiler alert. Um, but I, I thought it was so poetic how Mina dies or disappears, how like, it's just like she's limping through this thick fog. And then all of a sudden she's just like not there anymore. And like the sound of this, like this, like this limping and this, it just like stops. And so, yeah, there's something very just eerie to me about that kind of elegant of like death by death by nothing, you know, death by 
disappearance. It literally takes your breath away because I think you get caught in the rhythm and then all of a sudden it snaps out and you're like, holy, it's like, did you think it would be another like hammer to the head or something? Oh, I didn't think that specific way was coming whatsoever, but I've watched the movie more than once. And the fact that that moment is still (laughs) as effective, it just, it really blew my mind. And I think it speaks to Dave's, uh, Dave's skill as far as style and capturing things visually go and really understanding the pace and tone of a movie. Isn't it such a great, like, it's his first feature direct. It's insane. Like, it doesn't, it feels, it feels seasoned to me. And on set as well. Like, he, he, I just am excited to see what comes next for him because I feel like, I just can't believe it was his first time. Like, he, it's so tight. It's so, I've worked with a lot of first time filmmakers and it's always important to me to, support emerging artists and you know there's always these like promises they make like it's gonna be the next Cassavetti it's like Tarantino Paul Thomas Anderson put together even though I've never made a movie before and like there's a lot of promises like like lookbooks oh my god like lookbooks kind of crack me up these days because I'm just like it's so easy to look at a lookbook and be like wow this is beautiful but it's like well yeah there's just like a found images from other beautiful movies and it's fine. It's so good to have a lookbook. It's good to have a vision. But I was so amazed that Dave fully executed like what he promised us he would, what he set out to do. Like I, I think this is exactly the movie he wanted to make, um, and that was cool. I was because I was rooting for him anyways. But you just never know. Like sometimes things just miss their mark, and especially when someone hasn't done it to that capacity. Right. But absolutely. The the company of a film is like absolutely enormous. And when you're thinking about all these creative minds coming together and being in sync to actually see a vision through like that, I feel like it's not talked about how easy it could be for kind of one thing unintentionally to fall out of place and have it affect the final product. Yeah, it's like one of the beautiful and horrifying things. Yeah. It's like it takes a village. <laughs> All right, we have to talk Snowpiercer because, again, I finished my binge watch and I am fully obsessed. <laughs> I was covering pretty heavily because I was obsessed with Snowpiercer the movie, no surprise there when you guys were first getting off the ground and all the craziness with, you know, switching from TNT to TBS and back again and the reshoot for the pilot. You, as an actor that's part of the ensemble, only have so much control, though. So what is it like for you going through that whole, like, where is it going to go process and how are things changing? Yeah, it's tricky. Yeah, it's like you said, you just don't have control. So you're you're on for the ride. And at first it, it was a little bit unsettling because we didn't really know. We never quite, we never saw the first pilot that we did. So um, we weren't really sure what didn't work about it or like what. um, And so, but I will say that any first season of anything I've done feels similarly, even when there's not a lot of changes behind the scenes, because it's just like, I think maybe a freshman season thing where there's a lot that's being established and figured out like tone and, it's like, what kind of show is this going to be? And sort of like, so I've kind of experienced that before, I guess, with just first season things. And I, I do think that the second season, um, we we got to like gel a little bit more because because those those things got kind of ironed out. And and yeah, I wouldn't say it's unique to Snowpiercer. I think, at least in my experience, most first seasons are just like 
it's not out there. And there's, there's also just that like nervous energy of like, is it going to do well? Is it going to get canceled after one episode? Is it, there's so many like wild cards and um, the timing of a release. And it, it's all like, I just try to stay focused on my character for the most part, because it's like, I get, it's, I, I have friends who will track like all the ratings and the numbers and make spreadsheets and stuff. And I'm like, I, I can't, Oh, much about the business side. Of well, my, from your perspective, I feel like that would get, I, I'm a little obsessed with box office numbers. A lot of people out there know that I just, I like the prediction game, but I can't imagine just being a creator and being very into that. I guess the producers have no choice, but beyond that, forget it. Yeah. I know. Especially when it's like, this is like how I make a living and these ratings are going to affect like whether or not I have a job. Um, but it's uh, part and parcel to being an actor. Unemployment is yes. unemployment. And you guys did get a season two, so you're in good shape here. I'm definitely going to ask you some spoiler questions on this one. But before I even get there, we know David, we know Jennifer, but is there anybody who has a supporting role that just kind of like really wowed you and you wish that folks out there were talking about even more? Gosh, I can say that like it's hard to choose because I love I think this cast is really special like and I I, I'm not just saying that it's like I'm friends with some of them and I have to promote the show like they are so unique each of them and have such a unique like spirit and are just people really take their work very seriously so I'm like oh who do I I know I know it's so hard Sam Otto who plays Osweiler I think is unbelievable he's this young british kid um who was um in a mini series before this this is definitely his first u.s show um and i want to see way more of him in the show to be honest (laughs) i think he's he's exceptional he is just like i don't know like something about sam he can just like lift something off the page and it, it just like comes it comes to life and gets nuanced in ways that it's like, wow, you just really made that thing work that I wasn't sure was going to work. Um, so he's incredible. Susan Park is amazing. She plays Jinju on the show. She is one of the funniest human beings I've ever met in my life. She doesn't get a chance to be funny as Snowpiercer, but she's been in like, she's had some comedic roles um, in the past and she writes and directs herself as well. But she's, she's quite a force to be reckoned with. And um, so I know that now I'm like going, just two more. No, please go for it. Um, Katie McGinnis, who plays Josie, and Mickey Sumner, who plays Till, are just so phenomenal. They're just really, really great people. And they, I know Katie also comes from like a theater background. And I think that her, she has a quality that's really special. Obviously, Allison Wright is like the genius of all geniuses. But I sort of feel like we all know Allison's genius. <laughs> Um, so yeah, they, they, I, I, I could like, just, I, I feel bad to leave anyone out because I feel like everybody's special, but, um, yeah, I wanted to just give a little extra shout to Sam because I, I sometimes find myself wishing that there was more of his character. That's definitely one of the special things about the show is getting into the the nuance of all of their decisions, too, because I feel like no like very few people on the show are so purely good. And the fact that everybody in the ensemble establishes their motivation so well, where you can 100 percent understand both sides of the equation, 
that's kind of what keeps you engaged and uh, like on on the edge of your seat based on what decision they're going to make next that'll sne- seal Snowpiercer's fate. It, it stressed me out in a good way. Yeah, it's something I appreciate a lot about the show too. It feels like I just like characters are more complex and human when they're yeah. not all good or bad, right? And then especially in this post-apocalyptic, like dystopian world, I feel like it makes all the more sense that some people are making selfish decisions or mm-hmm. bad decisions because it's a pressure cooker of humanity. And like now that we're in a world kind of similar with the <sighs> pandemic, I think we're seeing similar things. Like there are people making choices right now that I do not understand at all. And I don't think they're the right thing. But it's like you you get put in this like everything gets heightened because it feels like the world is ending. <laughs> the idea of one person's decision on Snowpiercer potentially sealing everyone's fate is yeah. just like through the roof watching it right now. Like, I know. It's- made me sweat almost too effective. Spoiler questions for Snowpiercer before I leave you here. First, just bringing back the idea of, uh, you know, characters making good decisions or bad decisions. I'm curious, do you see... Zara differently from an actor perspective versus a viewer perspective as you're actually watching the finished product. She has like such an arc where I think it's intended for the audience to like not agree with what she does, then to be back behind her again and then go the other way. So what what is that push pull like for you? It's it's hard because you can't ever judge your own character. You know, you have to kind of be on their side. But she has made choices that like, sometimes I'm just like, okay, why, <laughs> why is this happening? But what I do have control over as the actor is, is the backstory, is the stuff that sort of justifies the character's choices. And so for me, the big thing was that like, she never really wanted to come on this train in the first place. And now that she's here, she's just like trying to find some sense of purpose and I think this baby is is what she's hoping is going to give her like a reason to live, really. And so that's something that I could see. And I think people can relate to that of just like feeling like there's no reason to like, why am I part of this thing? This thing is a mess. And and she evolves. She continues to sort of like um, do what she needs to do to keep surviving, to like not be swallowed up by the intensity of the train. And so... Yeah, I tried to just lean into the moral gray of it all because I, I do like that, but it, it's it's a tricky balancing act as an actor because you, even if your character is not likable, and also I'm, I'm often advocating in a way to see more unlikable women because because I think there's just too much of like, oh, when we see it, like female representation should always be like hospitable and polite and agreeable. Like it's okay to see like nasty girls too. And so... Um, but then it's hard because then at the same time you have to deal with like, yeah, there's people who definitely don't like Zara and don't like what she's up to. Um, but that's okay. It's uh, What's nice about a TV show is that things can go all over the place. There's like, yes. after so much. You got the foundation there to justify her decisions, though, which I think uh, it definitely makes it work quite well in season one. I'm not sure what you can tease about season two, but, you know, you bring up Zara's baby being a source of motivation for her survival in season two. But 
Will we get to see maybe the impact that her seeing the tail stick together and rise up and see this revolution through affect how she behaves in season two as well? Yeah, you start to see that, I think, right at the end of season one. She kind of joins, she helps with the revolution. Um, And so, but again, she like toes the line all the time. So I feel like she cares less in a way about the grander politics than she does about Andre. I always felt like, like she was searching for love. Like that was like the only thing left that she believed in. And I feel like once you've lost everybody in your life, like all your family members, all your, the world has frozen over everything you've ever really loved is gone. You're just stuck on this thing. Like it's, it starts to feel like who, you know, just existential for her. And um, so she continues on like a, 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 the, the trajectory she's on in a lot of ways, but I feel like she's still finding her, her way in this world. And maybe that's not a bad thing. Like I can certainly relate to not quite fitting in anywhere and, and, and sometimes floundering in that, in that kind of misfit, non-place. Non <laughs> oh, I'm so excited to see more. I'm so excited that you guys shot it, too, because yeah. I'm scared. I, I, like, I, not even just on, you know, like a pure entertainment level, but film and television and storytelling in general has been such an important thing for, I can only speak for myself personally, but I have a feeling it's true for a lot of other people out there to lean on right now as, as just like a source of comfort and a rock. And, you know, even to process what we're struggling through right now in a different way than you might've been able to without it. So I am so happy we have all this stuff right now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Me too. I I wonder when it's going to come out. I have no idea. Uh, Yeah. Hopefully sooner rather than later, because I'm very impatient. Before before I let you go, I like I could talk to you for hours. This is uh, like not nearly enough time, but I do want you to promote that that other thing that you were working on. Did you say it was on? Was it your Instagram account? Yeah, it's uh, it's called Medicinal Music, and my Instagram is at Don't Worry. It's Sheila, <laughs> and Medicinal Music is basically a video playlist that explores mental health issues, particularly ones that I think are born out of life in the screen age, as I am calling it, like how much time we spend on screens and in cyberspace and um, exploration of my own depression and anxiety. And hopefully that it's, it's trying at least to promote the use of music to kind of heal those things and to energize you and get you out of your hole and um, it's a really wacky, singy, 10 episodes. Each one's about four minutes long. And there's a different song in each episode that I introduce you to that I love that's helped me in my life. Um, but it's a very, like, uh, uh, internet art kind of kind of vibes, I guess. Um, very wacky, but it was so fun because I got to just, like, be a weirdo, which is, uh, I think, my truest self. <laughs> I look forward to checking that out. And for anyone out there who hasn't seen The Rental or Snowpiercer yet, both are available, and I truly highly recommend them both. Again, Sheila, congratulations on those projects and everything you've accomplished over the course of your career. I cannot wait to see more. Thank you so much. Thanks for talking.
that little chico pit bull, Mr. 305, better said Mr. Worldwide, and I'm here to tell you about my new podcast, From Negative to Positive, brought to you by my friends over at State Farm. I believe that to have success, you got to play the game, so that the game doesn't play you. You know, the biggest risk you take is not taking one. It's very important that you make sure that you make the most out of your money, especially when it comes to insurance. State Farm offers surprisingly great rates. They have great agents standing by helping you personalize your coverage. All this is backed up by award-winning, easy-to-use technology. It's a great price with an even greater service. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Does anybody want breakfast? Guys, let's go. I'm leaving for McDonald's in five seconds. Why do you start with that? The Breakfast Stampede Meal. It's only at McDonald's, where there's a meal for every morning. And nothing says morning like a classic sausage McMuffin with egg. Right now, get this all-time favorite for just two bucks on the one, two, three dollar menu. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.